Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. Today's episode is guest hosted by Marianne Bouchard, the Executive Director of the Sigma Awards. This conversation is part of a recorded virtual conference on covering the Russia-Ukraine war with data that took place on the 21st of June in 2022. With the Russia-Ukraine war nearing 200 days, journalists have been documenting, verifying, and reporting on the shocking atrocities that have happened inside the country. But as the conflict carries on, the need for more accurate data has never been more important. Journalists need to understand where to find reliable data sources, how it was collected, and how it applies to their day-to-day reporting on the conflict. To help journalists grapple with these challenges, Marianne Bouchard spoke with three data journalists and a data analyst to delve further into this topic. Among them include Peter Bodnar, a data journalist at Texty.ua, Ukraine's top data journalism outlet. Data Lindell, a data journalist from Russia, now at The Insider. Karna Shadrovsky, head of research at OCCRP, and Claudia Manili, senior data analyst from ACAPS.org. Now let's take a listen to our conversation hosted by Marianne Bouchard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's really um, a big honor to be able to gather experts from Russia and Ukraine today, as well as representative um, from a, a data gathering organization uh, for this session. So um, let's try and um, begin with some questions. True. Um, the first two qu- questions I have are um, uh, specific for Peter and Dada here. Um, because you guys um, have been covering this pretty much from the ground. How did you react uh, when the conflict um, intensified earlier this year? Um, Had you worked on um, stories tackling the relationship between uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, before? Uh, What sort of measures um, have you had to take um, to ensure your physical and digital security? So when the war began... I was still in Moscow, in Russia, uh, because uh, until the very end, I didn't want to leave uh, the country. And uh, yeah, when the war began, that was like, uh, we were kind of prepared to it. I mean, every day before the war began, we discussed, like, will it eventually start or not? Because we collected data and we... uh, and somehow participated in the research mostly made by Central Intelligence Team, a Russian team of OSINT investigators that uh, since November told us that uh, Russia brings the weaponry, the people to the Western border, to Belarus, to the Ukrainian border. So every day, I think, before the war, we were discussing and we were discussing with some of our sources if it will stand or not. But eventually we realized that uh, it will start on <clears throat> February 24th. Like, I mean, uh, several hours before. It, it was kind of obvious. And um, I think that the very first days, uh, since I am somehow like myself as an activist, 
I always speak to people and uh, speak about their digital security and physical security because I'm kind of paranoid. Uh, I started working not only with the newsrooms that I know in Russia, but uh, with all the activists, lots of people who were preoccupied with their digital security. And uh, it was the time to give some personal or group advices to people about their digital security, about what happens if they like leave us without internet connection or something, what happens if um, you know, police takes your phones and if you discuss it. That was even before, uh, like several days after the war began, uh, they made new Russian legislation that prevents you to, 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 to name the war being the war. And uh, they also uh, pronounced that if you collect data about Russian military, you will be uh, you will be accused of state treason. And uh, since that, uh, everyone from many newsrooms that made investigative journalism, specifically from inside, we had to leave the country because it was like very very dangerous for us to stay there. Uh, also, since the very first days, uh, we were interested in, and even before the war, we were interested in collecting data about. Uh, what happens on the border? Where are people? Where are weaponry? How can we kind of, if we cannot prevent it, just we can tell like what happens there and uh, who is there and so on. <clears throat> so that was another case uh, for me and for not only for journalists, but also for activists, how to collect information about people who are there how do we verify their personalities? Because since the very first days, we had lots of photos, videos, some some just news, some pieces of texts that said this person was killed there, this person like uh, this person is detained or something. So we had to collect all this data and to verify. And I know that lots of activists and journalist teams uh, make this. I consulted several teams that try to uh, make social networks of people and try to verify their personalities. And that was that is like speaking about digital security and about data. Speaking about physical security, that means that uh, mostly all the journalists in Russia had to leave the country. Like mm. all the investigative journalists and all the journalists who were just afraid of their lives, of their freedom, they had to leave the country, mostly. Like, I think that maybe 80% at least. Okay. And what about you, Peter? Uh, yeah, hello. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to tell you a little bit about our experience. Uh, so uh, our team, we were, we were writing about uh, uh, Russia waging war against Ukraine for the last eight years. I was a part of it for the last uh, five years. So uh, the full-scale innovation wasn't such a big uh, surprise for us. We expected mm -hmm. it. Uh, one way or another, one day or another. Uh, I think we started understanding that something is going to happen at the beginning of the uh, last year, where first reports came about Russian troops um, uh, concentrating uh, around Ukrainian borders. And uh, this is the moment when we decided to uh, create a project, with, which we later created, uh, that was tracking amount of military equipment uh, in uh, Russian um, military bases around Ukrainian border. 
uh, yeah, talking about the starting point of uh, this war on the 24th of February, uh, it was a very messy and uh, um, uh, unexpected time, I'd say, uh, even though we had plans and we understood that something like that could happen, uh, when the war starts, most of things don't go uh, according to the plan fully. But anyway, what we've done, we've, um, we've moved uh, most of our uh, critical uh, digital infrastructure into the remote cloud because we had some computing and some mm -hmm. data storage in our um, local computers in our office. Uh, we also uh, ensured the uh, um, digital protection for our computers and for our accounts, uh, access to uh, databases, everything we need for our work, and which is critical for us. Uh, what else we've done? We also created a plan about how uh, can our team members evacuate from Kyiv. We are working from Kyiv, uh, capital of Ukraine, uh, and more or less it worked according to that plan. And we also had uh, some backup plans uh, on what to do and uh, where to go in case uh, if uh, internet connection and mobile connection disappears fully. Thankfully, we didn't have to check uh, how those plans would have uh, gone because uh, internet connection was stable throughout the last four months. Um, yeah, but anyway, a lot of things, lots of things changed. Two of our uh, team members, uh, our editor, uh, our deputy editor, and uh, our uh, news uh, um, news editor, uh, they got enlisted in Ukrainian army, so our uh, team got a little bit smaller. And um, prior to this full-scale invasion, we also done a lot of uh, explanatory uh, articles uh, about how. Uh, military is built and how it works. We had a nice visual explanatory uh, article describing what is what is battalion tactical groups and other elements of army which were further used in this invasion. And we also worked a lot with uh, uh, the topic of disinformation. Uh, we have our own um, database of uh, um, news articles or like news articles uh, and propaganda articles from a variety of Russian official uh, websites and uh, like affiliated with the government web websites. We analyze them and uh, try to identify uh, important topics uh, and discuss how uh, those topics um, illustrate actual Russian, uh, actual Russian policy towards Ukraine. Yeah. Great, and that brings us um, to the next point I wanted to chat with you too. If you could um, very quickly um, show us like an example of the coverage you've done um, so far that you feel embodies um, well the work uh, of your organization um, on the, the Russia-Ukraine war, that'd be great. Um, Peter, maybe you, you could start because you were just talking about some of them. Yeah, I think uh, one of the, um, the most important uh, articles before the war was the uh, article tracking uh, military bases around Ukrainian border. Um, we, so we used satellite with active radar. I think it's, uh, this is the way it's called. Uh, this is a Sentinel-1 satellite. And we use it to identify what is the area covered by, um, basically covered by metal objects. Uh, on the territory of uh, Russian uh, military bases uh, around Ukrainian borders. So this this one it uh, describes how uh, what is the battalion tactical group? It is uh, it is basically a basic uh, unit comprising Russian army in this uh, in this invasion. 
Uh, and uh, for example, prior to the war, we uh, to this war, we also done an article on uh, how uh, lightning change on satellite images of uh, both of uh, uh, the territories of uh, Ukraine, which are currently controlled by government, and territories mm -hmm. of Ukraine currently controlled by Russia. Uh, so uh, the project we created after war started is uh, uh, war videos chronology. We collect. Uh, videos about war and we store them on our server and we allow uh, our users to uh, check um, uh, check which were uh, check uh, videos about um, uh, about war about basically battles about uh, all ki all kinds of events uh, using uh, as a calendar or just plainly checking videos and looking for information they are uh, looking for so this kind of work um, classifying, storing information, uh, making information uh, useful for the public and reused by other teams is a very important aspect of our work. So I think these are uh, the projects that embody our, uh, our approach uh, in a lot of ways. Thank you very much. Um, what about you, Dada? Uh, thank you, Petro. That was kind of incredible. I first have to kind of tell you a couple of things that for me, I think it's that it was like a major change since the war began, not only that we have to evacuate like all our team members and we were all in different countries in very different conditions and like that was kind of incredible. So on some investigations, our work had to stop. We had to stop work or we didn't publish lots of investigations that were before the war because now they kind of like, why would we publish this? Because the war continues. I had to learn a lot about social engineering, though I was always a data person and on the other hand, a cybersec person. But I had to learn a lot about social engineering because now you don't only like search and collect and gather all the data, but you have to speak to lots of different people who will not speak to you because you are a journalist, because you tell that the war is the war or and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, also what uh, the insiders team did, and that's incredible. I am not like a very big part of it, but I want to show you this. It's not about like data gathering and all this kind of thing. It's just a small explanatory video. And um, the video team became one of the core teams in the insider team because, first of all, uh, even even because like even since everyone had to flee and we have to leave our places, uh, they created like improvised studio, like a small studio in a small. Uh, in a small room um, in one of like post-Soviet countries, and I'm not sure shall I tell in which one or not. And this is a small experimental video that gained a million of views, uh, though the channel is not very big yet, and it just has some information of why uh, Russians go to Ukraine and Russian is like what what they tell it like the second army in the world but we see just lots of lots of videos from the social networks and this small video is all based on social networks videos and we see that it has like it it loses people it loses all the equipment it loses all the tanks everything and this video tries to explain why this happens 
and they made lots of lots of these short explanatory videos of how how would you speak to your relatives that don't believe that war in Ukraine exists because it's like I think at least half of Russians don't believe that there is a war in Ukraine they tell this is not a war mm-hmm. how do you speak to your relatives how you will not get mad about it why lots of people die in Ukraine what happens there and so on and so forth they also uh, made a YouTube channel with with news and uh, like other kind of news because since all the media in Russia are closed now and YouTube still works, they made a stack on this YouTube channel. And see, even if the channel is not like very, very big now because Navalny's channel is bigger or some libertarian channels are bigger than this channel, but it it's not just about talking of people to people, it's also about telling about military, telling about like military equipment, telling about the war, what happens in different regions of Ukraine, because we think that this is very important now. It's not like discussing who are good Russians and who are bad Russians, because it, many people in Russia now discuss this, but we want to show people what, what like how the war goes on. Also, for sure, we collect all the, uh, like we collect lots of data, we just don't publish it like text does. Uh, we collect lots of data. We try to collect data in some ways that before the war I would consider it to be not ethical. Like I would never work with some like face recognition systems before the war. I would never work with like leaked emails before the war. Now I think sometimes I do, and some of my colleagues do too, because like now if you want to know who were the people in Butcher that made all these, like, unmanly things, uh, we will have to go to a face recognition system to try to learn who they are. Even before the war, uh, the insider, as, as well as the texty, as well as the iStories media, uh, we all were on a pretty good, like, on a high level of data journalism, I suppose, because... Um, I think that uh, we have not seen it like in many newsrooms all over the world. Uh, and uh, now uh, we have to apply oral skills and try to do as much as we can, I don't know, try to name all the people who make these like war crimes and so on. Um, that's really interesting. And um, um that leads us to actually we are in a good uh, in a good flow of um uh, introducing you guys and so i thought we could um um also get to hear from karina now i mean at, at occrp you've been working and um with data in different languages right on various topics involving crime and corruption and um how does the, this conflict in ukraine stands out um or relates even to other topics that you've worked on before Hi. So I think that in a lot of ways, it is very similar. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the Russian asset tracking project that we did, um, which is basically a collection of assets of oligarchs and Putin's inner circle that we decided to track their assets around the world. I can talk a little bit more about that project in a bit. But with that project, it's very similar to the work that we've been doing all along, Um, you know, following the money, looking, getting public records around the world and trying to uncover assets that are quite difficult to uncover. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what was different is kind of the sense of urgency that we all of a sudden had once uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, you know, we've always been doing this, but everything just felt really important um, and really urgent. And within, I think, two weeks, we managed to uncover billions of dollars of assets, um, you know, working endless hours, barely sleeping just to kind of get this information out. So I would say that that's a bit uh, different. And then just in terms of all of the other leaks that have been, you know, released since the war began, everything seems really important. Um, everything, you know, you don't really know what the agenda is of who's actually leaking this information. So what's also different is just, you know, trying to go through this information with that lens and decide what is worth looking into, what is worth covering. And it's just vast, vast amounts of data. Um, and, you know, with that sense of urgency from the public, from colleagues who are also trying to cover this in the best way that they can, um, it has definitely been a challenge to kind of sift through this data um, and try to understand what actually is important and what we can, you know, make a story out of, I'd say. And so, yeah, you were just mentioning it um, a second ago. Can you tell us more about this uh, project of yours, the Russian Asset Tracker you've developed? Um, how did the idea come about and um, uh, what were um, the challenges that you faced while making yeah. yeah, so um, we have we published this project. It's actually still ongoing. It's the called the Russian Asset Tracker. Uh, we started off by identifying a number of oligarchs or uh, people closest to Putin And the idea was to make a comprehensive database of their assets that are fact checkable and um, basically proven, which sounds simple. It's actually really difficult. Um, You know, there have been stories coming out basically um, from news media all over the world about different assets that are being uncovered. The idea was to have kind of a one stop, a one massive database where it's all there. Um, and where we can say confidently that we believe that these are the assets that belong to these individuals. So that was kind of how the idea came about. Um, we started adding more people to the database as time went on. Like I said, it was really um, a massive undertaking. So we started small and we're continuing to add assets. Um, and the idea was, you know, there's tons of information. A story may come out about Abramovich's yacht or um, Usmanov's villa, but the idea was to say, okay, we actually got the documents. Our fact-checking team, which is incredible, basically you know, went from point A to point B, and we were able to prove without a doubt that these assets belong to these individuals. We've recently added a section of reported assets. Um, as a lot of people probably know, these people go through incredible lengths to hide their ownership, Um, this information is not easy to uncover. Even if we can get records, their names are very rarely actually listed in the data itself. Um, so we have to do a lot of digging and background information to actually tie these assets to these individuals. Um, so we do now have a section where there are some reported assets that are, there's a lot of proof and evidence that it does belong to them, but you know, we're not necessarily, we weren't able to actually fact check it uh, with the documents themselves. Um, so yeah, we used a number of public records. Sometimes it was quite simple, just going to a land registry. Um, but oftentimes we had to get a bit creative. We, uh, like you're showing an airplane now, we did a lot of plane tracking to show, you know, not only 
if someone owns an aircraft, but we actually used it to see if they were flying to a specific destination often to prove that they're still connected to this actual, the villa that we thought they might have been. Um, same with yacht tracking. So we had to kind of think outside of the box a bit um, and use kind of all of the asset tra tracking skills that we've been, you know, using for all of our stories in the past and bring them all together in a really short time period to uh, pull this project together. Wow, that's um, that looks like a mind-blowing um, data work. <laughs> How many of you guys were on this project? There was um, 50s, I think it says on the... Um, website exactly how many partners but that was also what was um you know super incredible about this was that this is you know was because it was such a massive undertaking we mm -hmm. had partners from all over the world that really you know it was an all hands on deck type uh project where we had you know because there was tons of assets all over europe and we had basically partners in every single country that was able to help us you know pull the data that we needed and actually get the information. Um, I think it was 50 plus um, news organizations that actually participated in this project and are still continuing to participate. So it was a kind of really cool mm -hmm. chance to kind of, you know, all get together and put um, a mix of different regional and language expertise to really good use. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, Carolina, for sharing that with us. Um... Uh, now, uh, Claudia, as I said earlier, when I introduced this um, this panel, we are very lucky to not just have data journalists come and share their experiences, but also to you have experts from other horizons uh, to come and talk to us. And you are a great example of that, uh, Claudia. Uh, you work at ACAPS. And um, um, can you, um, first of all, introduce um, a bit um, yourself and, and, and ACAPS and tell us how long you've been collecting and analyzing data on Ukraine? Thanks for the invitation, first of all, and we are very happy to be here. Um, so what ACAPS is, uh, we are not journalists, we are analysts mainly and data collectors uh, active in the humanitarian sector, which means uh, mainly either natural disaster response or conflict like this case. And what we try to do is we try to inform um, basically the humanitarian community um, on what is going on in specific situations. We have teams around the world that are focusing on crisis. We have one team on Ukraine and we have global uh, analysis as well. Great. Uh, I am Claudia, so I am a senior data analyst of the global team, but I was uh, helping the Ukraine uh, team uh, in the data collection. So I guess that's why I'm here. So about, about Ukraine, uh, we have been collecting data since late March. So since we're not journalists, the humanitarian response sometimes takes a little bit more to be activated in all these assets. Let's say humanitarian response are big, sectorial, there is analysis as well in the response, so it takes sometimes a while. Uh, we decided to take action at the end of, uh, of March uh, when we felt there was the need to be, to be there in terms of analysis. And uh, we decided to build mainly two data sets, uh, one on um, civilian infrastructure damages and the other one on uh, humanitarian access events. So it's easier to explain civilian infrastructure damages, meaning that mm -hmm. that's what it is. So we were tracking uh, um, damages uh, 
related to whatever was uh, um, a civilian in infrastructure with damages, so no buildings because that would not be possible. And uh, on the other side, the humanitarian access events uh, uh, data set is more related to whatever is uh, relevant for humanitarian actors uh, uh, to know to access a specific place. And so, well, thank you very much uh, for this, Claudia. I'm sure we're going to get also tons of questions about this. And um, what I'd like to uh, do is to throw uh, um, at the four of you uh, some general questions about um, about working with data um, on the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, the first one um, is going to be because this session is about, you know, um, helping um, people watching, um, finding um, what are your reliable sources of data. We've just mentioned one example, maybe um, uh, people didn't know before, uh, that is um, ACAPS and a few other mentioned by uh, our speakers today. Um, maybe we could add to that list um, uh, so where can journalists find reliable data um, on uh, Russia-Ukraine war? Um, uh, that would be uh, quite useful to, to our um, community. And what advice do you have on how to use or interpret um, these data that we can find online? I'm going to bring everybody um, um, on stage for this, uh, so you're all uh, welcome to answer. Do you have yourselves like a document with a list of <laughs> the different reliable sources you use um, every day to get data from? We have some sources that we use. However, since it's highly politicized and everything, it's very difficult. So my, mm -hmm. my, like the advice that I give to analysts and to data collectors, and I feel to journalists as well, triangulation of whatever information you find, try to see if it's reported in, in other sources, how it is reported. Uh, that's that's pretty much uh, <laughs> the first advice. And uh, if you if you manage to find a data provider, try to understand how the data was collected. And uh, if there is transparency, their own limitations, then they might be reliable. But always try to verify. Um, Dada, Peter, Karina. I suppose if you say about like uh, what what information shall I believe to? Uh, I would again say about verification. So either it's verification made by you or it's verification made by someone who you uh, trust. Like I trust to CIT, Central Intelligence Team, which is Russian group of activists. I trust to myself, my colleagues, I trust to Belenkert, I trust to also CRP and namely, mostly that is it. I, know, I trust to Amnesty probably, that's it. Right. Um, that I mean, it's pretty much pretty many sources. Uh, I just uh, for for me, it's just like you look at the photo, or you look at the footage, you look at the video, and uh, uh, if you are interested in it, if you're interested in what happens there, you try to understand what happens there. If you see a news, a piece of news which touches me a lot, because I'm from Donbass myself originally. And uh, if I see a piece of news that there was a, a strike to like a huge blasts in uh, Donetsk market, all I want is I want to know uh, probably uh, who made it, right? And if is this even possible to know who made it? Uh, when there were like when the siege of Mariupol began, I was. Like I mean, I think for for two weeks, 
all I wanted is I wanted to be there because I could not trust anything, any piece of information that um, goes from there because you understand that both parties can lie. That's obvious. And mm-hmm. um, even now, again, because Mariupol is under siege, not, not under siege, but under control of uh, Russian military and some Russian, I don't know, political knowledges or people, I, uh, the both worlds are bad for them. Uh, all I want is just to be there and to see my with my eyes what happens there because I could not I cannot trust anything except what I have seen with my eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Or what the eyes of the reporter that I know have seen, or someone that I can trust have seen, someone who can critically assess this information. So this is just verification. And uh, but if you if you if you if you if you tell about like your sources, some sources that give you data. I think the if you cannot just double check it, like uh, for example, if someone gives me a leak and I can somehow double check it, get the same leak from the same like I don't know, make make some hacking or something like this. Uh, if I can double check it in this way, um, obviously I have to ask several people uh, who can know something. That's probably what Claude says, like triangulation, what she calls right. Uh, to, but this is the very same standards that we had before the war, actually, because mm-hmm. uh, we always had to had information from several sources. Or better, if we can see it ourselves. Like someone tells us there is a mansion owned by this oligarch or by this deputy of state parliament. We have to check the documents, we have to go there, we have to have our drones, we have to film everything, and that's how we are sure that this thing exists and it is as big and maybe as expensive or something as I we were told, and the same about war. I, I, I don't see any other kind of standards. I see that my probably my ethical standards, like my and my colleagues, are somehow changed because yeah, as I already told, uh, sometimes we now use the instruments that, for me, were completely prohibited to use. I, I would not like let myself before the war. Now I let myself because I want to make people like, how do you say it, like go to jail. Okay, <laughs> I want to make people go to uh, make those people who made this work crimes go to jail at least. Uh, and that's why I let myself use some other instruments. But that is it. Uh, that is it. This is just very uh, ver- verification technology. Technolo- technologies techniques are the same. I'll just add. Um, you know, I'll echo what Claudia and Dada said about verifying data. I had mentioned, you know, the way at OCCRP we're covering the war a bit differently than journalists that are covering it on a daily and more, you know, news-driven basis. But I had mentioned that, you know, there been, have been a lot of leaks. Um, so just in terms of a source to look at that information, though, you know, the provenance of it is not very clear. The motivation of those who hacked, um, who leaked the information is not very clear as well. But um, we have made a lot of this information available on our data platform called Aleph. So journalists can apply for access and get access to, you know, look through this data and decide for themselves um, what is, you know, considered newsworthy. 
Um, but like Dada and Claudia had said, there's a lot of work that obviously needs to be done to make sure that um, what they're looking at is, in fact, uh, newsworthy and worth uh, publishing online. And so we talked a lot about um, the data that is already there. Um, some of you have had to, I mean, pretty much all of you, have had to compile yourself some data sets to, to cover the conflict properly. So we can um, pretty much say that um, um, collecting the data, I mean, the, the, the data work is one of the, one of the big challenges of, of covering this, um, this war. What, what, um, what's the missing data today? Um, what data does not exist, but you wish it did? to cover this, um, and this conflict? I can just quickly add, you know, for us with, um, especially in the framework of the Russian asset tracking project, there, you know, it shouldn't be this difficult to track the assets of these people. Um, mm -hmm. So ultimate beneficial ownership registries uh, around the world, um, more available real estate databases in Europe, et cetera. Um, this is information that, you know, should be quite transparent um, and isn't. And I think it became super clear to the rest of the world that this is a massive problem uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, really needs to be addressed and hopefully is. And so uh, we see a lot of uh, similar reports being done uh, by news organizations around the world um, uh, on this conflict. Um, uh, we obviously see maps updated daily, um, discounts, assets, um, listing, etc. Um, what do you feel are the missing narratives um, that you wish more journalists um, tackled covering the, the Ukraine-Russia war? Uh, that's uh, just my point of view. Maybe I've missed something, but I think that humanitarian impact of the war and the, like, the very impact on a, a local basis in a specific cities, uh, problems with access uh, to the fresh water, uh, infrastructure damage, a lot of stories connected to this, um, and infrastructure, uh, yeah, uh, damage to the roads, bridges, and how daily life of uh, ordinary people changed during the war. Uh, I mm -hmm. think this part of picture is pretty much missing, or at least not that uh, covered as uh, military activity, um, some economic activity, and uh, politics. Uh, in the humanitarian sector, there is um, a tentative on tracking this type of damages, but they might not be the, the easiest to consult, sometimes data sets. But on this purpose, I think that for humanitarian purposes, for example, one of the narrative missing is when things are also improving to let uh, the humanitarians in. For example, if a bridge has destroyed, it's very easy to report on that because you will see a bombing somewhere and th that's reported. But you probably this cut off access and for the humanitarians, it's, so, it's useful to understand if the situation somewhere improves to be able to access it as well. So... Mm -hmm. That's a very difficult thing to track if you track damages when they improve it. And that's a narrative that for us is missing. But yeah, <laughs> it's maybe asking too much. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Um, one last question before we get to, to questions. Um, because you four are, are quite used now to um, tackling this, um, this, this topic. Um, I'd like to get you to give us tips or advice that you could give to other data journalists um, around the world that are not used to um, um, this conflict, um, uh, maybe didn't have in a, 
any prior knowledge of um, the history between uh, Yosha and Ukraine. Uh, what, what tips would you give them on how to uh, cover these conflicts with data? Any advice on um, um, how to understand the conflict properly? Always check where is your information from, not just like data in terms of numbers, figures. Every kind of information, always double check, triple check. I don't know how many times you have to check, but check everything what you try to report about because I have seen lots of lots of times when journalists who consider themselves to be very like true to life or very objective who report on things that already are proved not to be true or are not obvious if they're true or not. And they just make it because it, it um, I think that many people now became left not objective. And it's really, really hard to, to still be objective since the very first, like I remember um, after the first week when I found myself that I can't trust myself anymore. I can't trust my own assessment to things anymore. I was not sure if I... Uh, if, I'm, if I am objective now, but mm -hmm. I have seen lots of people and lots of reports that uh, they are happy to report about anything that proves their uh, their point of view. Like my point of view, for example, someone's point of view is that all Russians are orcs and all, everyone should be killed, and they just pick all the kind of information to prove it. Other point of view, the same, like for Ukrainians, the same, for some other people, the same. Uh, for some nation uh, minorities, if they, how they call it in Russia, the same. For example, like, I don't know, Tatars tell that, ah, here we go, here how Russians oppress us, and uh, we just pick information and that's it. And uh, I don't know how many times you have to check, but probably it's not that every piece of information is worth sharing, I don't know. Um, always try to estimate if you still are a kind of objective or not, if you try to be a journalist. If you are not a journalist, if you became an activist, I think that you can do kind of anything since you are an activist. But I still consider myself more of a journalist. I'm an activist, but in other fields, like in field of cybersecurity, probably I'm an activist, but in field of information, I still am not. Uh, but that is it. That is about piece of advice. And for people who work in newsrooms, I think that they have to teach themselves how to still, in many times, how to search for data, how to search for footages, how to search for images, how to verificate the images and photos. And I think I have, I already have held, I don't know, several just. Uh, workshops even i was invited by people who are, I, I didn't even know that they like work on something uh how to verificate photos and images and also i think that many newsrooms have to work have to teach themselves how to work with satellite imagery uh because at this very moment we still have access to satellite imagery which is free of charge which is mm -hmm. somehow like it, everyone can get it uh, if they have some kind of knowledge, how to get it, how to analyze it. And uh, th that was a very beautiful example of what Petrol showed us, right? Like, right? like uh, if there is a metal, like some metal infrastructure in this place, and we just compare it that there were no, and now there is. And that already makes us some incentives to think about what happens there. 
And uh, I see now that almost no one in lots of newsrooms that I talked to, they don't know how to how to use the satellite imagery at all. They don't know how to get it. They don't know how to analyze it, how to compare them, how to use them. Uh, but still, they can imagine lots of beautiful uh, reports that could be made with it, but they don't know how to. Probably this is one of like instruments which mm -hmm. is unused. Thank you very much. Um, Peter, uh, what tips would you give um, someone who hasn't worked on the, on the conflict before and have to uh, produce some data-driven piece? Uh, yeah, um, I agree with those tips that Dada proposed. Uh, mm -hmm. And what I could add is maybe uh, try to familiarize yourself a little bit with the um, local uh, historical and cultural context. For example, like the story a friend of mine told me about a journalist, journalist asking him if he can, uh, if my friend can show that journalist, uh, how, how was it? Uh, basically a part of the city in Kiev, Ukraine, where Russian speakers live. And mm -hmm. it's just a plain, uh, an impossible situation in Ukraine. There is no this kind of sp special, um, special stratification which maybe exists in other countries but it's just doesn't work like that in ukraine so i think uh, some uh, basic fam familiarity about the uh, um, moods uh, viewpoints and the cultural uh, speci uh, specific features of the population in the area of conflict could be very useful while uh, doing even the data-driven stories just familiarize yourself with the history probably yeah. from different sources. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if that would be useful for many journalists, I suppose, because uh, since I was in Europe, I had to explain to many people here and for journalists too what actually happens in Ukraine because uh, and that it started eight years ago because they just had no idea what happened. We just have a few minutes now. Um, I'm, I'm going through the, the questions and the comments we had um, uh, on YouTube. The first question I have is actually from um, the European Journalism Center, um, asking you, Claudia, um, how big um, is the data team collecting this information uh, on Ukraine? And um, has your criteria for collecting the data changed um, over the course of the war? Uh, five data collectors and the criteria, yes. They change because when you structure a data set, you think to find something. And then the more you go on and you realize that you might have chosen categories, indicators, or you might have structured your data sets in a way that is not flexible enough to come up with the new, you know, new challenges and new things that you might um, encounter. So, yeah, the more you get inside the process of collecting and inside the, the situation itself and, and things are changing. And this is valid Ukraine and in my experience in many in many other in other data sets, let's say. Um, we have um, another question uh, from Arantza Erans. Sorry if I miss your name. Um, it's a question to Karina, actually, um, to know about the Russian asset tracker. If you if you have found out in your investigation uh, which country are the majority of the Russian oligarchs assets, where are well, what's the country that gathers the more um, assets? What we've actually found was that it really is truly global. 
Um, there are a number of jurisdictions that are more popular for different types of assets. For example, um, Isle of Man was very popular for private aircraft, Cayman Islands and uh, was really popular for yachts. Um, and, you know, then there's companies in the UK and Cyprus, et cetera. So it really was truly global. Um, and what we've been paying a lot of attention to now is that as some countries are deciding to seize assets and sanction these individuals, is where is the money actually going? Um, mm-hmm. And these are, you know, countries where they have, there's no indication that they are going to sanction these individuals and seize the assets. Um, and a big um, jurisdiction that's been coming up a lot is the UAE and specifically Dubai. So, yeah, I mean, it really is a truly global network of assets, but we are noticing patterns in where the money has been moving since the war started. Cool. Thank you very much for that. Um, next question is from Christina Costa. Um, really interesting, actually. Uh, do, do you see the tendency of also um, European authorities um, not making data more accessible? Um, when we're talking about who are your trusted sources of data, um, we haven't mentioned whether you guys do uh, use regularly um, data from um, the European Union uh, data portals or the UN portals or um you know, the, the usual suspects we use in lots of different and other um, data projects. Um, what do you have to say about that? I mean, for us, it has been, you know, this isn't anything new, but when we're looking at assets, like I'd mentioned before, it's been, you know, quite shocking if we're trying to uncover a villa in Italy that it's owned by an Austrian company, an Italian company, and then a Liechtenstein trust at the end. And because of a leak, we were able to prove that someone owns this Liechtenstein trust. So, you know, data may be available in some sort of way, right? The documents are available for purchase. The fact, you know, sometimes you have to spend a ton of money just to even get those documents. So I wouldn't even really say they're accessible to everybody. Um, But even when the data is actually available, that doesn't actually help us necessarily uncover who's truly behind these assets. So this is a major issue uh, that we've always faced. And if the data were more uh, transparent, I think, you know, we would have had a lot easier time actually tracking these assets in the first place um, with this project and all projects in the past and that we'll be working on uh, going forward as well. Cool. And well, um, um, that's a great transition to um, to the next comment um, we had uh, from uh, Smaranda, because you guys did collect your, um, um, that data yourself. Uh, do you suggest that journalists do that, produce their own data sets? Um, while covering such um, such a crisis, um, and and if so, what are the challenges of doing that um, when you're not specifically trained? The thing is that you actually actually you have to be trained. You have to have some kind of competences to create some data sets. But if you start with the small ones, for example, I know activists who are not even kind of journalists. They just made it because they are obsessed with this topic, uh, who search for, uh, I don't know the word, but uh, Russian military who were kept, who are kept by Ukrainian military. I don't know how, how is it called? And uh, they create a data set and they create a data set, the relatives and so on, just to, con- to connect to them, to make them know that their sons, uh, where they are, what happens to them, because it's a huge problem now for Russian like mothers, wives, and so on, because they don't know where their where their people are, 
because military doesn't answer them these questions. And they create a data set. They just use some kind of Google spreadsheets. Uh, we can sell them on how to make, how to protect their data, how to keep it, um, how, to how to publish it if they decide to publish it because it's uh, also about some kind of GDPR standards personal data and so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, you have to build these competences in, in the newsroom because this always makes your work uh, like, like richer. Mm -hmm. It's not just, it's not like you have to have a, a specific team of data people, of DevOps, of, I don't know, developers and so on and so forth. Uh, sometimes it's like some kind of spreadsheets, some private server some kind of basic security and say digital security is enough. Uh, just don't be afraid of it. And there are lots of open courses on data journalism and how to create your own data sets, how to collect your data. Always, I don't know, lots of lots of workshops. Just participate in them. Try, give it a try, give it a try. Uh, because I think I think my favorite thing is when newsrooms collect data and uh, they make some new data set. It's not like we take it from somewhere. I don't speak about now the leaks that OCCRP, for example, receives or we receive because that's other story. But uh, when we create some data, when we know, for example, I recently created a data set of all the uh, railroad crashes in Russia and Belarus, because we know that there are partisan people who try to destroy railroads to, to stop the tanks go into Ukraine. And you will not take this information from the government because government is not interested in creating this kind of data set. You will not get a data set of people killed in the war or of uh, civilians killed in the war because no one is interested in creating this kind of data set. You will never get any kind of data set. Maybe someday, like in a year, you will get a data set from the government of destructed infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But you are interested in it now. And this is you. The, you are the only one person. You are the only one person as a journalist or activist or, I don't know, also like human rights activist who is, inter who is interested in it and who can create it now. And is, you are not like alone. You can develop a group. You can create collaborations. It's always possible because lots of people are interested in it, in it now. Actually, a couple of days ago, I, I was in a conference and uh, it was a conference for developers. And I presented to them all the different things that we as open, as open source investigators, as journalists and human rights activists, we are interested in what we want to have now, which instruments we want to have. They are so eager to help us for free. It's not like... Rocket science, just, yeah, educate yourself. And yeah, for sure, newsrooms shall develop their own data sets. That's true. Thank you so much, um, Claudia, Dada, Karina, Peter. Um, it's been very great to, to, to have you here and to, and, and to get to hear your experiences. It's been great to hear from you. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. The Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com 
powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. That's all for now. See you next time.